Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 10 through 12 is where we're going to get started. Ezekiel 43, verses 10 through 12. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of that, all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain, all around, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now we see here in this section two main purposes for Ezekiel showing the Israelites the plans for the millennial temple. The first one is very clear, that they may be ashamed of their iniquity. God's one main reason why he wanted the Israelites to see this new temple that's going to be built in the future is so that they would have repentance. Does anybody understand how showing them the plans for the new temple would bring about repentance? Well, not just compared to what it was. Compare it to the fact that why are they even looking at a different temple plan? Why, why are they even looking at another temple? What happened to the old one? It was destroyed because of their sin. The place that had been built for God to dwell with them had been desecrated by their disobedience and their outright sin. And the fact that they're even needing to look at another temple was because the one that was had been destroyed because of them. It's kind of like you, and, and I hope this doesn't hit too home with too many people here, but let's just say that you stupidly got drunk and crashed your car and destroyed it. And then you had to go buy another one. Why are you buying another one? Because of what happened to the old one. And that's what he says to them. Show them these plans for the new temple so that they'll be ashamed of their iniquity. There's another reason as well. To also encourage them of God's forgiveness and his future plan. But this is only for the repentant. There's a word here in verse 11. Does anybody see it yet? And if they are ashamed of all that they have done. Do you see it? God offers forgiveness. He offers grace. He offers his mercy. He offers wonderful restoration and blessings to come for those who are repentant and are willing to acknowledge we've messed up. We've made a mistake. We've done foolish things. We've sinned. And then God says, okay, look what I will do now. I'm actually, like you pointed out, Jeff, I'm going to build you a new one. I'm going to build you a bigger one. I'm going to build you a better one. And it's going to be one for all time. All right? So, notice that it says in verse 11, the temple plans are so that they may observe all of God's laws and statutes and carry them out. Do you see that there at the, uh, at the end of verse 11? Write this down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. I'm just going to ask you straight up. Is that even possible for them to do it? No. Here God says to them, hey, I want you to lay out the plans and write it all down and, 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 and do it in their sight so that they will be able to observe and to obey everything that I'm commanding them to do. Sounds like a futile waste of time again, doesn't it? Why does God say to us, 
Be holy because I'm holy. Why does God say, do this and you will live, when the Bible also says, apart from him, we can do nothing? Why does the Bible also say that in and of himself, man is sinful, man cannot do anything on his own to make himself right with God. Why does God always give us the law type of instruction and also for us as believers commands to obey when he knows we can't do it? So we'll see our inadequacies and why? And turn to him. You see, when you read this, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. You have to read it remembering something he's already said in chapter 36. Go back to chapter 36. In chapter 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, Israel, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When is this going to happen? That they're actually going to be able to live in this temple and to do everything that he's commanded and follow his statutes and his rules? Only during the millennial kingdom, at the end of the tribulation period, when all this is fulfilled. Oh, but Jim, the nation of Israel has been brought back into their land. Oh, no, the prophecy said when, when he does that actual bringing them back into the land from all the nations, he scattered them. The nations will all know that he is the Lord. Is that the case now? Do the nations know that God is the Lord? No, they're actually turning further and further away from him, as the Bible said that they would. But when the tribulation period comes, Churchill's been raptured already, when the tribulation period comes... And God does what he does with the nation of Israel and they go through that purifying process and the Antichrist goes after them and the world goes after them. At the end of that time period, those Jews that survive will all know the Lord and he's going to erase their sin. He's going to put his spirit within them and he's going to cause them to obey his statutes and obey his rules. So when God says, write this out for them so that they may obey my statutes and, 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 and carry them out, it's tied to Ezekiel 36, where he said, I'm going to do this for you. It's going to be me that does it. You can't do it yourself. Unfortunately, Israel, from the time that they were given these instructions by Ezekiel, even until now, still are in unbelief, aren't they? Oh, they rebuilt the temple, and people wept when they saw it, when they had seen the other one that Solomon had built, because it was so much smaller than the one Solomon had. And as you know, Herod came and added on to it, so much so that when Jesus came on the scene, the disciples pointed out to him the beauty of the big temple. And what did Jesus say? Well, this one's actually going to be knocked down as well. And there won't be one stone left on top of another. And we know that there's going to be another one built at some time, at some way, whether prior to the tribulation period or at least during the beginning of the tribulation period. Because at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to step into a wing of the temple and declare himself to be God. So there has to be another one still to be built. But this temple that Ezekiel's been given the specific designs for will not be until after that in the millennial kingdom 
Because that's when the Spirit of God's going to come and dwell it and stay there forever. And that's when the Jews are going to be able to carry out all of his statutes and all of his laws. Oh, but we have this role now. We've been looking at this. We looked last week at how we've been called the royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. And we have been called to declare his praises. As we looked at last week, we're to di distinguish between clean and unclean, common and, and holy. We're to be used by God now. And oh, we've already talked about this, but I want to remind you, the promises that are Israel's in the future, at the end of the tribulation period, into the millennial kingdom, are the church's now. Because what has he promised us who would believe in him through faith? He said, I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to erase all your sin. I'm going to put my spirit within you and make you clean. And I'm going to cause you to obey my commands. But most Christians today don't understand that third part of it. And we've already dealt with that in detail. But I want to talk about that some more. We have this role now to be his representatives to the world. That the world will know that there is a God and that he's holy and that Jesus is God himself. And the only way to be made right is through faith and alone in what his son has accomplished through his sinless life, his death on the cross for the sins of the world and his resurrection power. We've been given this responsibility now. And just like the Jews in the future won't be able to do it until his spirit comes to indwell them and he moves them to do it. We too have to understand on a daily basis, we can't do it either. We can't do it either. And unfortunately, most of us, a lot of us out here are older generations. We were raised in a church during the time when we were taught that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. God has to do it. But now that you're saved, you need to live for God. Anybody ever hear that kind of preaching? You need to be in church every Sunday, hear your envelopes. Check off the boxes. I brought my Bible. I went to Sunday school. How many of you remember the old Sunday school pins where you got a pin for perfect attendance and you could attach, attach them? I had, I had them too. That they, actually, I remember an old song. It says, my son, I'm not going to sing it, but the words say, my Sunday school pin got too long for my coat and it hung all the way to the floor. I haven't missed a Sunday in 33 years and next year would have been 34 it all began on the day that I was born when the cradle roll added my name. And for richer and poorer and sickness and health, my attendance went on just the same. But it stopped short when I fell and broke my shin when I tripped on my Sunday school pin. All right. We were raised. God's given me a weird brain. I'll admit it. I remember everything. We were raised in an era in which we were taught you can't save yourself, Jesus has to do it, but then we were taught you have to live for Jesus. Let me help you out. You can't. You can't. And I want to take some scriptures tonight to help burn that into your brain. Go to me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Jesus is teaching on the abiding relationship. He's just taking them through the Passover and explaining that this meal that they had eaten all those years was actually representative of his body and his blood. He's just washed their feet, teaching them about the sanctification process. 
Chapter 14, he's begun to tell them about the indwelling Holy Spirit that's going to be promised. He says in verse 15, he says, if you obey my commands, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you a helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world doesn't understand this because they don't, they don't see him. But you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. And in that day, you're going to realize that I'm in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. And it's going to be an awesome promise. And then he gets to chapter 15 and he starts teaching about the vine and the branches. And in chapter 15, listen to verses 4 and 5. He says, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, let me tell you something. It wouldn't hurt us to do a reminder of this every morning when we get up. Doesn't the Bible say we're to lay our flesh on the altar, our bodies on the altar? as a daily offer of our sacrifice to Him, which is our reasonable service or our spiritual act of worship. We're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But because sometimes the English doesn't always really translate the Greek the best, I would love it if you would write into your Bibles there in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the daily renewing of your minds. Because in the Greek, it's a daily thing. You have to daily renew your mind. Maybe throughout the day, renew your mind to the truth. And line yourselves up with the truth. And so when we start off today, we should start off by saying, Lord, I want to live for you today, but I can't. I want to live for you today, but my flesh doesn't want to. I want to live for you today, but the enemy is going to try to hinder me. And I'm in a spiritual battle and I get to put on your armor. I want to live for you today, but the world is set up against all of that kind of thinking. And I have to admit, the pressure of the world sometimes kind of weighs in on me. And I cave in to peer pressure but Lord, I want to live for you, but I can't. But you said that if I would rest in you, you're in me. And you're going to produce much fruit through me. And so today I want to walk with you in control. Because apart from you, even though I'm saved, I can't do anything. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 28 and 29. He's in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a sentence, and if you ever tried to stop and pick up in the middle of one of Paul's thoughts, you'll have a hard time because they just all run together. But he says in verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. You see it? That's going to be important later on because I'm going to ask you a question in just a little bit. So keep that in mind. But Paul says, to this end I labor, I struggle, I toil, but it's not me. It's His energy that works through me. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I got good news. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
Oh, but you have to let him. Is he willing to take control? For sure is. Is he willing that all would be saved? Definitely, the Bible says he's not willing that anyone perish, but all come to repentance. But then how come everybody's not saved? Because God will only give what he desires if you ask him, and you receive it by faith. Old Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says this, In the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. We got saved by trusting that what God offered was going to happen, and we asked him to do it. We believed that he would save us, and we thanked him for it, and we know we're saved daily. He's offered us his power. By the way, I'm getting into my Romans 8 messages a little early here, but he's promised us the same power that rose Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Did you catch that? That doesn't mean I'm going to get a new body in heaven, although the Bible does teach I'm going to get a new body in heaven. But the Bible also promises that here in this mortal body, he can give life to this mortal body. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead now lives inside of me and lives inside of you. And I have to daily... Believe that he will and act like he will. Go to Jude, verses 24 and 25. I love, I was listening to an old message by Adrian Rogers and he was preaching from uh, Jude and he said, some of you might say, what chapter? He said, just turn to Jude, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I like that. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time now and forever amen Isn't that an awesome promise He's able to keep us from stumbling and able to present us blameless before him in the presence of his glory so here's my question do we just sit back and do nothing Expecting that God will do in and through us what he wants with no effort on our part? No. Do you remember how Paul said, I struggle, I toil, I labor, but it's with his energy. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's an interesting combination of verses, isn't it? You're to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in you both to desire and to do what he wants to do. What is, how do we put those two together? How do we trust in the Lord to do the work, yet at the same time do the work? By the way, that's a question. You definitely, well, you can have one without the other. You can do stuff for the Lord and not have his strength. Jim? Well, we see the ineptness of ourselves. For example, be holy for I am holy. And you go to him and you say, Lord, this is uh, not within me. And then you still recognize that that's what has been said. And at that point, you rely on him to do that which you cannot do. So did you just say that before I can actually do by his power, I have to acknowledge that I can't do in my own power? 
Don't miss that. And I'm about to share something with you that hopefully will set you free. This truth is there every single day. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But do we sometimes forget? Let's be honest. Do we sometimes forget? Me too. So sometimes when God wants us to be here, we're actually here, right? And if God wants to move us from here to here, he can't move us from here to here if we think we're already here. If God knows that we're here, but he wants to move us to here, but we think we're here, what's he got to do before he can move us from where we actually are to where he wants us to be? He's got to show us where we really are. Years and years ago, when we first moved here, well, not first, but we moved here the last time in 2000, we were blessed to get a house here on the beach side when I became pastor at this church. We got a wonderful house, four blocks from the Atlantic Ocean, four bedroom, three bath, in-ground pool in the backyard for only $119,000. You want to talk about a big God. But we had a problem. See, when we moved here in 2000, our kids were all little, and AJ was only one. Maybe two. I don't know if he was one. He was one and a half. And we have one, two, three, four doors on the back of our house that go to the pool. And AJ thought he could swim. We were always checking the doors. Where is he? Where is he? And so I realized I can't live like this. I've got to teach my son to swim. So I took my son out in the backyard and I said, I want to give you a swimming lesson. And he wouldn't let me because he didn't think he needed one. He didn't need to be taught. So I said to my son, okay, you can swim. Yes. You don't need dad to teach you. No. Then I'm going to give you a swimming test. And then I said to Becky, go where you can't hear or see anything. You cannot come rescue him. Go away. And I took my son, who thought he could swim, and I threw him in the deep end of the pool. By the way, the deep end in our pool is seven feet deep. See, he thought he was here. I knew he was here. And in order for me to get him from where he was to where I wanted him to be, I had to show him where he was. Did he pass the test or did he fail the test? Failed it wonderfully. Listen closely. Was I mad that he failed the test? I was actually ecstatic that he failed the test. You know why? The test accomplished its purpose. Have any of you tried to do this Christian thing on your own strength? How'd you do? Was God mad? Not if it accomplished its purpose. You see, some of us fail and try harder to pass the swimming test the next time and try harder the next time. No, no, no. The reason why God puts us in these situations and says, hey, woman caught in the act of adultery, go and don't sin anymore. Good luck. Why does he do that? 
because he puts us in situations to show us where we are. And so, listen, your heavenly Father wants to daily remind you of this truth. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And sometimes when we lose sight of that, he lets us go through stuff to be reminded. And if it has accomplished the purpose, he's not mad. Because what's he trying to bring about? Repentance. Let's go from here. We've just seen that in Ezekiel chapter 43. Show them the designs of the temple. Oh, by the way, the reason I want you to show them is I want them to be ashamed of their sin. But at the same time, I also want them to realize that if they'll let me do what I promised to do back in chapter 36, I got something even better in mind from here on out. By the way, you know what happened to my son? He became one of the best swimmers you ever met. I'm not kidding you. We took him at two years old, scrawny little AJ at the time. He's now a big old moose, but, but at the time he was a scrawny little AJ. We took him to Wet and Wild. And we went, as you've ever been to Wet and Wild back in then, they had all these slides and everything ends up in a pool at the end. And the people that were always working, they were like, can he swim? Like, he can swim better than you. And by the end of the day, he was famous all over Wet and Wild. As he got to the top of a slide, they'd go, hey, little dude, we heard about you. Go ahead. And we would just tell him, look, he can barely fit on the tube. He was so scrawny. His head would be on the top. His heels would be on the other, and he'd be hanging on. But we told him, when you get to the bottom, let your thing go and just swim yourself out. He actually, what was a failure in his life, turned into one of the greatest blessings. God wants to do the same for you and I, but we have to be willing to acknowledge, okay, Lord, I can't do this. But I'm going to take serious the fact that you said that you would, and I'm going to live like you will. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I had never really seen this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in this light. As I read this to you, tell me if it doesn't sound a little bit like the book of Ezekiel and the instructions for the priests. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, we could all jump into, all right, I want a God to work through me. What did the priests have to do before they could do their service for the Lord? Cleanse themselves. How do we cleanse ourselves? We submit to the Lord and his sanctification process. You confess your sin. Confess is not you telling God. Confess is you agreeing with the God who's showing you your sin. See, too many people are saying, okay, I'm going to live for the Lord now. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. hang on for a second. Um, as my priest, you got to let me wash you. Oh, you've already been made clean because of your faith in me, but you got your feet dirty. You've been doing this sin. 
Are you willing to turn from it? Are you willing to turn from it? Are you willing to live a holy life? You know how the Bible says in James, the the book of James, it says that uh, the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Other translations say it's powerful and effective. In other words, God won't respond to the prayers of someone who prays a certain way but lives a different. You and I have been called to be priests in this life. Don't just set out to go do the work of the Lord. I'm going to do the work of the Lord in his power. What happened to Nadab and Abihu when they tried that? He took it seriously, and we need to take it seriously as well. So I'm just going to challenge you in this whole process of being willing to let the Lord do through you what he wants to do. Are you willing to listen first to whether or not there's anything in your life he wants to clean up? All you got to do is just agree with him that it's wrong and turn from it. He'll erase, it's already been forgiven, but he'll erase the consequences in the sense of your fellowship with him. And he'll say, let's go from here. Let's go from here. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 43. Look at verses 13 through 27. These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Remember, that's a long cubit. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad with a rim of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar from the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits with a breadth of one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits with a breadth of one cubit. And the altar hearth, four cubits. And from the altar hearth projecting upward, four horns. The altar hearth shall be square, 12 cubits long by 12 cubits broad. And the ledge shall also be square, 14 cubits long by 14 broad with a rim around half of it rim around it a half cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around, and the steps of the altar shall face east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and in the four corners of the altar of the ledge upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as burnt offerings to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for the sin offering. Also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these these days, then from the eighth day onward the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. Now, again, we're not going to go into too much detail about the measurements. The measurements, though, being so specific, show us this is not symbolic. This is definitely specific plans of a real temple that's to be built. Remember, though, these sacrifices and offerings do not cleanse from sin. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse from sin. The Old Testament sacrifices and offerings pointed toward Christ. These point back just like we do with the Lord's Supper. So when they going back to the, the sacrificial system, it's not like we've looked at exactly like it was in the Old Testament, but a lot of similarities. But the purpose of these sacrifices are to remember what Christ has done. It's a daily reminder. But at the same time, it's also going to be done to distinguish the Jews are going to be teaching the rest of the world what? 
difference between holy and common, clean and unclean, teaching them about who God is. Remember, we've already looked at these passages. During this time of the millennial kingdom, people all over the globe are going to be coming to Jews and saying, take me to Jerusalem. I hear the Lord is there. I want to know the Lord. Let's go see the Lord. Let's go hear from the Lord. And the priests are going to be doing these sacrifices, teaching them about the holiness of God. By the way, has anybody like me read this and thought, man, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about all that? Because as I read it, and I've studied it and read it over and over, I'd be afraid of messing up. I mean, the instructions are pretty specific. What if I forgot something? Kind of shows us how holy God is. Why do we take the Lord's Supper again? Why did Jesus tell us to do it? In remembrance of me. Isn't that interesting how many of us have a problem with the fact that there's sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? Yet we've been doing that for 2,000 years. Not sacrifices per se, but a memorial, a meal, the bread and the cup that represents his body and his blood. Uh, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and listen to what Paul says there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verses 23 through 26. First Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and it said, This is my body, which is for you. By the way, that you is plural. It's y'all. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. And when he comes, he's going to set up another way for the world to be reminded of what he's done. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. They're all, I'm not even going to take the time to get into the salt offering that we read about there. They're all pictures of Christ. And at that time, it's going to be pretty cool the world as a whole will be hungry to learn and wanting to know. And God will use the priests to be the ones who teach the people about these things. Wouldn't it be cool if the world today were hungry to know and you could be used to teach people that actually wanted to know? Wouldn't that be neat? I mean, well, here we are thinking about what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom and how the world's going to be saying, take us to Jerusalem. We, they'll hear the Lord's there. We want to be taught the ways of the Lord. Two or three people are going to grab one Jew and say, take us. Wouldn't it be cool if people were hungry to know now? Oh, I set you up. They are. They're out there. But we have been trying to share the gospel in our own strength. In our, I'm going to get to you, Zach. I see you. In our own strength, in our own abilities, we've come up with our own strategies and systems and plans and ways that we can reach the whole world. And okay, we're going to send so many people here and we're going to send so many people here and we got this window that has to be reached. And, and we come up with all these things. But what did Jesus say? He says, I'll show you where to go. He said, look at the fields. They're ripe unto harvest. 
And then he said, when you go out, let your peace go out. If it's responded to, stay there. If not, move on. Well, how would anybody ever respond to my peace, if you will, unless the Spirit of God had already begun His work in someone's heart ahead of you? We should not be going out there trying to find people that we can get curious about God. We need to go find the people that are curious about God and share the gospel with them. But we, without realizing it, have done most of what we do for the Lord in man's energy and man's strength. You've heard me say before, how many times has the preacher said to you, if you all would invite just one person next week, you can double our attendance. But would that be of the spirit or of the flesh? Last thing we need is to fill our churches with more people that don't know the Lord. Don't hear me wrong. I got no problem with you inviting somebody. But if they say no, okay. Don't hound them. Ask them next week. Zach, you were going to say something. Don't we have the same spirit as what sent the man to uh, the Ethiopian? You got it. Yes, we do, Zach. We got the exact same spirit with us that led Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch, whom God had already been working on. And boy, that was an easy one, wasn't it? The guy who says, someone's just going to tell me. Someone's just going to teach me. Jim, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the word to go out and talk to people. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, uh, this is kind of interesting. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. That's right. Must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. And this is the point. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance. Yeah. You need to repent. Oh, is that what that said? No. It says you don't argue and quarrel with them, that God will bring them to that understanding. Will bring them to repentance, not you. You want to have some fun sharing your faith? Some of you are going to be scared to death when I tell you this, because he may take you up on it. Ask him to show you somebody that's hungry. They're out there, folks. They're out there. Ask him to show you somebody that's hungry. By the way, these rituals that they're going to be doing have tremendous meaning, but they have no meaning without the proper heart of the worshiper behind them. Go to Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 1. Let me show you what I mean. These, the, these rituals that God's going to have them do in the millennial kingdom, they have tremendous meaning. But they'll have no meaning without the proper heart of the worshiper behind them. Isaiah chapter 1, look at verses 11 through 20. God says to the Jews at this time, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did you hear what he said? I'm tired of all these sacrifices. But God, you're the one that said to do it. Yeah, I said to do it, but to do it with the right heart. That shows you weren't putting your confidence in what you were doing, but you were putting your confidence in me. You did what I asked you to do, but you believed that I was the one who was going to make it work. Oh, and on top of that, you're living your life in such a way that actually it doesn't match up with what you do at church. Did you notice that I didn't even take the time to get in there because too many people would try to get into breaking it down to, well, is this legal or is that legal? But back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, God was kind of clear about whether or not Christians should be yoking themselves. It doesn't mean we have no partnership. We need to have contact with unbelievers, but we shouldn't be partnering with unbelievers. Not in marriage, not in business. We're supposed to be showing the difference between holy and common. But usually when people go in business with people that don't know the Lord, is everything done the way God wants it? Or is there a lot or a little bit of the world that creeps in as well? I had this one man who used to be in seminary years ago and he started a business while he was in seminary. He started making so much money, he quit seminary and made the business. He hired me while I was a seminary student in New Orleans and he took me out in his big Cadillac and he was showing me how to do this business. He wanted to hire me as a salesman, but I also knew that he was wanting me to lie and I wouldn't do it. And I said, I can't do that, sir, because that's a lie. What they were offering was is that if you hired his company, they would give you free blown-in insulation. If you hired us to do your roof, re-shingle your roof, we'd give you free blown-in insulation. But I knew that I'd been taught to calculate the price of that into the price. It wasn't free. This is what he said to me. He said, you have got to learn to separate your Christianity from business. <laughs> Folks, let me just ask you. Do you really want to get serious about this priesthood thing? This thing of being used by God? Understand, the first thing that God's going to do is talk to his priests about living holy. And then the world will see there's a difference between us and them. Yeah, Mike Pence got mocked by the world when he said he'll never eat alone with someone that's not his wife, a woman that's not his wife. And the world went crazy. They called him a misogynist and all this crazy stuff. It's okay. We're to show the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean. But we live in a hard day in which we've softened on a lot of stuff. A lot of you are out there doing some things that the Bible says is sin. But you've been doing it so long and the world's approved of it for so long, you don't realize. Be holy. Because I'm holy. Oh, don't worry. If you failed the test, what was the purpose of the test? To show you what he already knows. And if the test that you failed has brought repentance, Paul even wrote that to the church when he wrote to him. He said, look, I'm kind of sorry that I grieved you with my letter, but I'm not sorry because it brought godly sorrow. 
God says, let's go from here. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, we don't have to turn there, but Jesus talked about the Pharisees, and he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, start in verse 14. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? That's evidence of his faith. Good deeds. Can that faith or that type of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works or good deeds or evidence of the real faith, is dead. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We'll come back to that. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, some of you may not know this, but this section of scripture right here almost caused the book of James not to make the canon of scripture. Back when the people were wrestling over which were the, the books that were going to be canonical and which were going to be the words of God, and which because there's lots of books that are out there and not all of them made it. They had some really, really strict requirements. One of them was we had to know who the author was. That's why the book of Hebrews almost didn't make it, but it was so clear that that was of God and written by God. Even though we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, Hebrews made it. But the book of James almost didn't make it because of this section because it looks like James is contradicting Paul. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, what we're saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. Yet here he says, um, you see, verse 24, that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. But actually, they're both saying the same thing. What James is clarifying, though, is simply this. Just saying you have faith is not enough. Unless your faith is backed up by a life that lines up with what you say you believe, you don't have faith. Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. He also said to another group of people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Again, it's not my job to determine whether or not you're living right, and it's not your job to look around the room and think of who else in this area needs to hear this. But I want you to not miss, as we look at the sacrificial system and the priest's role in the millennial kingdom and the purpose 
that God has called us to be priests as well. And right now, the church has lost its saltiness. When I was younger, I used to be able to dunk a basketball. I know it's hard to believe when you look at me now, but when I played basketball in college, it was 100 pounds ago, I could dunk a basketball. But I really loved playing on 8-foot goals. Because even though I could dunk at 10-foot, it took a little work. But when we used to go play on the 8-foot goals behind the elementary school, it was a blast. I mean, because I could do 360s, I could catch alley-oops. It was easier. You know why? I lowered the standard. Without realizing it today, the church today is pretending to be Christian, but all they've done is lower the standard. Do you realize how many people that claim Christianity today are now saying that homosexuality is a choice and not a sin? But they say it's not a sin. Do you realize how many Christians today are living lives with secret sins of pornography? Because we live in a day and age in which it's hard for anybody to know. When I was younger, and some of you were younger, if you wanted to see a naked woman, you had to go to a store and buy it from a magazine, that would, and someone had to see you. Nowadays, anybody can pull it up on their phone. Now you're really confessing. He said, he goes, I used to go to National Geographic. Yeah, I know. I, we, we, all, we all did that. Listen to what I'm saying. We in the church today, without becoming judgmental, without thinking we're better than anybody else if we do these things and others, and we start, without looking down at anybody else, without looking at anybody else, I just want to challenge you in the days that we have left in the church age to understand the high calling that you have been called to and I have been called to. And whatever it is that the Lord is showing you about your life, listen, if he's pointing it out, he's not mad. He loves you. And he wants it to go away. He wants to use you. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Do you not see that God has the same love for us as well? And if you're like me, you still struggle in this flesh on a daily basis. Anyone says he's without sin, he lies, and the truth's not in him. My children, John says, I write to you that you won't sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We need to go to him. We need to begin to really get serious about this priesthood that we've been called to. You don't get to call whether or not you serve at the altar or serve at the temple. or serve. He gets to pick where you serve. He gets to choose where he uses you. But are you willing to say, Lord, I want to be used? Before you run there, understand that he's going to deal with some things in your heart first. But once he gets those things working, he'll use them. Do you have to be perfect before he uses you? No. You just have to be willing. 
repentance, daily renewing your mind, laying your flesh on the altar, and he will get you there. For years, we grew up singing the song, I Surrender All. Remember that hymn? I surrender all. I surrender all. And God says, no, 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 no. I never asked you to surrender all. Actually, if you tried to surrender everything I'm going to be asking of you in the next few years, it would kill you today. I'm just asking you to surrender what I'm talking to you about right now. You understand what I'm saying? Don't turn this into, all right, Lord, give me the whole. No, you've already had the bath. I need to work on something right now. And your heavenly father is speaking to you today in love, saying, give this to me. You think you can swim. I know you can't. I'm going to have to do some things to show you what I already know. But if you'll let me, I can take your failure in this area and turn it into one of the greatest things in your life. Pastor our home church, First Merritt Island, preached two weeks ago from the beginning of First Peter. And all he dealt with was Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's all as far as he got in the first message. But it was powerful. You know why? He said, too many of us miss the power of what's written in the letter because of we skip over the envelope. He said, for example, if you were to find an envelope and on the outside it said, to Barack. And on the return address it said, from the Donald. He said, wouldn't you... Want to be curious to know what was in the letter? He said, we need to read the envelope. And he took a look, and he took us back through, and you all know Peter's life. How Jesus called Peter, and Peter was one of these guys who thought he had it all figured out. And when push came to shove, though, even though Peter had good intentions, and he thought he was going to die for the Lord, when trials came, Peter failed miserably. Oh, he failed wonderfully. But then God uses that same Peter to write a letter to Christians on how to handle trials. Isn't that awesome? We would think, well, I've blown it so much in this area, God could never use me in this area. Oh, you don't know who he is. He can take your mess-ups and turn it into something awesome. Are you willing to lay it before him tonight? I had planned on going a whole lot further, but God got me preaching. But that's all right. I've got most of next week's lesson already written. So, folks, enjoy your role as a priest. But let him show you what it's going to look like and what you're supposed to look like in the process. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.